Live from the hills of Judea is the Land of Israel Fellowship with Rabbis Ari Abramowitz and Jeremy Gimpel. Shalom, everybody. Welcome to the Land of Israel Fellowship. Great to see you all. So good to see you all. Um, it's summertime in the Land of Israel. Uh, things are hopping. It's beautiful hot days, cool nights on the Arugot farm. And you know, last week, my family, we went away, though all the kids are out of school. And we took my extended family, which is my two brothers and their wives and their kids, all the grandkids, all the cousins, to celebrate my father's 80th birthday. And, you know, I've, I've learned so much from both of my parents, um, but they taught me more through their lives than through any formal teaching or chavruta that we had. And they're just so happy together. You know, they've been through so much together. They've been through amazing good times and devastating hard times. And I mean, my parents are in their 80s now. It's like, and they're just happiest when they're together. And I have a little sign in my house in the Arugot farm in our home in our living room that used to hang up in my parents' kitchen all the way back in Atlanta, Georgia. And it says, it's a picture of a cat that is kind of wheeling in a little carriage, a dog. And then it says underneath that happiness is being married to your best friend. And I think that that is just an absolutely beautiful Torah that Adam and Eve were brought together to become a new union. And um, my parents are just a reflection of that. You know, I've never seen my parents fight. I'm 43 years old. My brothers are now 50 plus, and none of us have ever seen my parents fight. That's that's not normal. I get that. Mm -hmm. But Tahila's parents, um, they're also actually best friends, but they have a different kind of communication. They communicate in a fight. Their whole communication is one big fight. <laughs> and it's like the Shabbat table sort of sounds like, um, uh, Shiloh, pass the challah, why do you have to wear that silly hat? It makes you look ridiculous. And then he'll say like, I'm going to be buried in this hat next to you for all of eternity. <laughs> and like, they're just constantly kind of like, sort of like fighting, bickering, kidding, joking with each other. But it's like a constant sort of um, cat and mouse game that they're playing with each other. And when Tahila and I got together, imagine a family that never fights to a family that only fights. And I would just say it like the cultures clashed when Tahila and I first got married. And, you know, we just see all the time that our marriage and our life and our children, we are in so many ways fixing our family tree. And I think that that's such a beautiful idea that that's kind of like the marriage is this spiritual climb, not just in our own lives, but really it's a generational climb. And we can shield our children from some of the things that we experience and try to fix the things that we wanted. And slowly we're really raising, we believe, the generation that's going to bring a new era into the world. And Tehila is going to talk about that. But... Before that, I wanted to say mazal tov to our dear friend, Renee Dupre, who is now engaged and soon to be married in Colorado. That is amazing. We see her. Is she on the, is she here right today? Is, is she online? I didn't see that. Are people pointing to her? I, I thought maybe, maybe a lot of the time she's on, but today I don't see her, but that's okay. I'm sure she'll be tuning in next week or later on in the week. But that is a very happy time. Renee is amazing. She lived on our farm. She was on the Arugot farm for a while in our home with us in the transition to the farm. She's um, just a dear member of the fellowship, a dear friend of ours. And that is such good news that she found a Torah living person that wants to just dedicate his life to God, dedicate his life to her. And that is just happy times for all of us. And so with that, I wanted to 
uh, open our fellowship with a prayer. And I can't tell you how special these moments are for me. You know, I, I, I'm soon going to be releasing my book called Waking Up, The Ancient Judean Way to Start Your Day as a full, complete book. It was an ebook that kind of came along with my original album, but now I've worked on it for about a year and a half. It's about maybe 60% bigger than the original ebook, and it's now just a proper safer. And it really is a book on biblical prayer, just on Jewish prayer, on Hebrew prayer, on the discipline of prayer, on the spiritual practice, on the benefits, on really what are we trying to do? What are we trying to achieve? And, you know, I, I live in the mountains where King David wrote the prayers that every Catholic and every Christian and every Protestant and every evangelical and every Noahide and every Ephraimite and every Jew and just like the whole world. <laughs> King David taught the whole world how to actually pray to God. And those prayers came into the world in the mountains around the Arugod farm. And so finally, to be able to share those insights into prayer with the world is really exciting. And the fact that Hashem has somehow chosen all of us you know, just watching the chats here from Norway and Europe and America and Africa and just all over the world, we have an opportunity to all come together and then through this place, through this land, connected to each other, lift up one prayer unified to God is such a revolutionary idea. It is literally a taste of the Geula. It's a taste of what the third temple will be. It's like a virtual house of prayer for all nations. And so what an opportunity. So Hashem master of the universe. Here we are, all of us together, your loyal fellowship. Every week we gather here and we gather more and more people every week. More and more people are signing up. More and more people are joining this movement from all over the world. We come together and we connect to each other. We connect to each other through this land. We connect to each other by the light of your Torah. And by the light of your Torah, we're trying to light our path through this world. We start our week off dedicating this time to you, dedicating this time to our highest ideals, to the values we cherish. We want to put what truly matters most in our lives first in our lives. We want our will to be your will so that your will will be done in our lives. Bless our farms in Judea that are in a daily struggle to guard your land, who are on the front lines protecting your people and the future of our people in the land of Israel. Bless our fellowship, the people who are alive right now, the people around the world that will be tuning in soon. Thank you for allowing us to reflect your vision for the world in our generation. Thank you for choosing us to be of the first people to live as this example for our children and future generations to see. Bless every family that's a member of this growing movement. Shine your light in their lives. Guide them on their path. Connect us all through your capital, Jerusalem, and help us shine a new light from Zion to light up the darkness of this world. Amen. All right, my friends. So a little bit about the Arugot farm. You know, it's Shabbats are long and relaxing. There's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to be. They're just amazing. And Tahil and I are learning together and reading books to the children together. And you know, all of the kids now are out of school in Israel. And so people from all over the country are coming to visit the farm. And outside of the people from Israel, people from all over the world are coming. And it's just so special to be the stewards of this holy place. And that somehow attracts the most unique people. I mean, because people that come from outside of Israel, 
they have, you know, I don't know, 10 days, two weeks. How much time do they have uh, on this, you know, voyage, this trip, this pilgrimage, this vacation that they have to Israel? And of all the places that they could go, they chose to go to the deepest Jewish settlement in Judea and go and explore the Arugot farm and find out what's happening there. And so it just attracts the most marvelous people. So there was a Jew who stayed for Shabbat, super successful businessman, not the most religious person in the world, but spiritual and religious enough to make it to the Arugot farm for Shabbat. And what a beautiful soul. And, you know, um, he joined me and Noam, my eight-year-old, shepherding on Shabbat morning. Shabbat morning is my shift. And me and Noam would go out into the mountains. Often Emunah, my 10-year-old, she'll join us. But Noam, it's like, he wakes me up in the morning. (laughs) He wants to go shepherding out with his Abba. And so Noam came and then um, he decided to come with us. And we didn't do anything special. You know, we took the sheep through the valleys and we talked about the Parsha and we davened together. We threw the baseball around and we just goofed around with the sheep. We we're just kind of shepherding out in the mountain. That's really my quality time that I have with my eight-year-old. And, you know, and I told uh, this guy all about our fellowship and he was just stunned, blown away. And as we were walking back from shepherding the sheep, we were out there for maybe about three hours Um, He told me that spending the morning in the mountains with us and the sheep was in the top 10 happiest times of his life. And I just, I don't know what to do with that. I just was out, you know, shepherding sheep like I do every Shabbat morning. And what an, I don't know, what a blessing, what an opportunity, what a schut, what a merit we have to be able to be the custodians of this mountain and to be able to be the kind of machnis orchim, the Abrahams of this tent that just brings in these guests. We don't know who they are. We don't know where they come from. We don't know what their backgrounds are. And it's just like open to the public, whoever wants to experience it. But it seems like we're just really lucky because everyone that I see that comes to the farm is just touched in their heart and filled with a certain light. And it's only getting stronger. Our fellowship is getting stronger. Our farm is getting built. We're now creating new farms in Judea. And I'm not saying that it's not a struggle. I mean, everything that's worthwhile in this world is a struggle. Everything you have to work for. There is no simple path. But we just feel like we are building something so unique in the world. It really feels like a little bit of a taste of the Geula. We're like building a small portion of God's kingdom and bringing this light that didn't exist before into the world. And it's not just virtual, it's physical in the land of Israel and the mountains of King David, like, wow. And so with that, I want to introduce you to really one of the most interesting people that I know in the world. It's never boring in my house because I'm married to Tahila. She constantly has interesting things to say and she's constantly challenging me and constantly teaching me. And she's just such a blessing in my life. She's a blessing to this fellowship. And um, the conversations that we had over Shabbat inspired this entire fellowship, but because she is the source of the inspiration, I want her to lay the foundations. And then from what she's going to teach, I'm gonna go through the Parsha and then we're going to build an entire structure from her foundations that she's going to lay, because I think that her insight is just spectacular, brilliant, and you will absolutely love it. So here is the wonderful Tehillah for you all. Hi, guys. So, you know, this past portion of Akev, there's an interesting blessing that we get if we listen to the Torah, it says in verse 14, you shall be blessed above all peoples. There will be no sterile male or barren female among you or among your livestock. 
It's a very striking blessing when you think about it. It doesn't say you're just going to be, you know, you'll be fruitful and you'll multiply. It says that if we listen to the commandments and we listen to the Torah and we follow Hashem's path, there will be no barrenness. Now, on the one hand, it's like an amazing blessing. On the other hand, the whole Torah tells us stories of extraordinarily righteous people who struggled, you know, who struggled with their fertility. Uh, you know, I remember I once had a woman speaking to me and she just burst out crying saying, I had a miscarriage and I'm struggling with my fertility. But the Bible says that if we listen to the commandments, there will be no barrenness. And of course, I told her, on the contrary, the Midrash teaches us that Hashem gave challenges to our matriarchs of yearning for children because they were, the they were the most beloved. Our matriarchs started the nation of Israel. It wasn't a sign that they weren't worthy to be mothers. It was, it was because they had to go through those challenges to become who they were meant to be. So it could be that this blessing is speaking about, you know, a future messianic time. And it could be, but at the same time, I want to see if it's speaking to something that we can relate to right now. Maybe there's a message for us here. And, you know, the first word of this portion, ekev, that word ekev, it's a word that in Hebrew means like a cause and effect, something that stems naturally. What stems naturally from this kind of righteous path that we're told to walk on? What could be the prophetic message for us here? It struck me that there seems to be a process going on of spiritual evolution. If in the past there was a sort of survival of the fittest that favored whoever was the strongest and the smartest, you know, like if you were a good hunter or you were smart at evading predators, then you'd have more babies that would survive more than the other guy, and so you would pass on your genes. Today, with all of the technology, we've, you know, lowered infant mortality. It seems that we've moved into something else, something of a survival of the most spiritually inclined. If we look around the world, even though life is easier in every way, even though there are countless technologies to help infertility, even though people have more of a social financial network than ever before, even though we have more food, almost everyone in the Western world has shelter. You think that, you know, you would think that families would be exploding, but they're just disappearing. And it seems that the world is dividing into two groups, those who believe in raising the next generation and those who don't. I'm sure it's not a surprise to any of you, and this is something that many people speak about, that birth rates are declining all over the developed world. As the world becomes more educated and more wealthy, birth rates decline. We're at a point right now where in the Eastern world, China, Japan, Korea, demographers predict that in 270 years, they're the populations will be 2% of what they are today. From a historical perspective, 270 years is not even that much. And the world as we know it would be totally different. But it doesn't even take that long. Europeans in 60 to 70 years, uh, uh, in about 70 years, are going to be 60% less in population than what they are now. And some people could say, well, you know, there are rises and falls in birth rates. This might change. Historically, there has never been a population that dropped below replacement rate and still managed to recover. It hasn't happened, so it's hard to imagine that it will suddenly happen out of nowhere in the secular industrialized world. And as more of the world becomes educated and industrialized, it's easy to imagine that this trend is going to continue. Now, instead of fighting this implosion of humanity, we see that the strong and the powerful economic forces in the world are actually pushing this agenda. And they don't even hide the reason. There is actually a deep hatred of humanity underlying decisions being made by world leaders today. Take, for example, Yuval Noah Harari, the Israeli professor and author who is the highest level advisor to Klaus Schwab, to the World Economic Forum, bringing together the strongest and most powerful people who make policy plans for the world. He doesn't hide what he really thinks. He tells us straightforward. There's a great quote of him. He says, uh, you know, by, by Yuval Noah Harari, he says, the useless class 
This is how he titles his speech. The most important question in the 21st century economics may well be what to do with all the superfluous people. What will conscious humans do once we have highly intelligent, non-conscious algorithms that can do almost everything better? This is something they constantly talk about, that humanity is actually a burden. Now, if this is what the powerful elite secular leadership really thinks, then we can only look at what, what's left for us to do is to look at things that are happening in the world through that prism to make them make sense. When you look at the war on simple biological truths, the war on marriage, the war on men being men, women being women, on making families, you think, what the heck is going on? Why is this happening? But then you say, oh, if the purpose is to lessen humanity, then everything makes sense. Okay, then you might say, surely the environmentalists, they care about our health and want to help us flourish, right? Hmm. Well, interestingly, you can see that everyone seems to be focused on carbon emissions, but conveniently ignore other parts of the environment, like, I don't know, all the plastics and the chemicals in the water and in the food that are messing with everyone's hormones. Okay, well, surely the medical organizations, the World Health Organization, they want to help humanity flourish. Of course, oh, wait, were they the ones ignoring all the vaccine side effects on female, you know, cycles and fertility? Oh, no, well, here, surely the technology companies want us to flourish. Well, maybe if they're encouraging us, to, you know, young people to live online and to be on dating apps that encourage short, meaningless relationships instead of getting married and starting families, if you go one powerful secular institution to the next, suddenly not everything is a head scratcher anymore. Everything actually works in a convenient direction. Jordan Peterson uh, often quotes Jung in saying that if you can't figure out what is motivating someone and what they're doing, look at the outcome of their actions and then infer backwards and figure out the original motive. So if we see this happening before our eyes, the world being divided between the secular vision of basically wiping out humanity, save but of course the few wealthy and powerful useful people, on the other hand, we see that people of faith are the only ones actually continuing to build families and they're the ones that are going to build future generations. Now what is really interesting is to look at Israel on this because the verse in our portion says that Israel will be a ble blessed above all nations in a different way from all the other nations. And there will be a special blessing of not having barrenness. What could that mean? Well, every demographer in the world is talking about the relationship between education and fertility. The more educated people are in a certain country, the less children that country has. And every time they write it, you'll see a little, you have to put a little asterisk or a little footnote, except saying, except there's this one exception. Israel here is the absolute single outlier that no one can seem to explain with regular scientific tools. Little old Israel is known as the Israel fertility paradox because even though Israel is one of the most educated countries, one of the most educated countries in the world, you don't see a drop in childbirth that you see in every other country that comes along with education. And even if you look inside Israel, it's not entirely true. The Muslim birth rate plummets with education. In 1960, Israeli Arabs had an average birth rate of nine children per family, and now it's three. The paradox is only in the Jewish population where you see continuously high birth rates unrelated to education. And you might say, oh, it's just those ultra-Orthodox Jews. No, even secular and mildly traditional families in Israel have far more children than secular people anywhere in the world. Something about the biblical values that run even deeper maybe than someone's conscious identity, that biblical ethos that's like in our blood, it's 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 at the at the it's, it just goes so deep that it it gives us a love of family and of humanity. There's this one article that came out, there's a lot of articles that discuss this. 
But there's one article from the Canadian National Post that I just loved. I wanted to read you guys a little excerpt from it. It says, when surveyed, Israelis said that the ideal family size is three. But in America, Europe, Australia, the ideal family is two. I have a lot of friends in Canada, says the author, who say they want to be child-free by choice or be one and done. But those concept have not, concepts have not entered into the Israeli discourse. <clears throat> Why both moderately religious and non-religious couples are choosing to procreate so often in Israel is a mystery to demographers because it is in opposition to the trends in Europe, North America, and Asia. The real secret to Israel's fertility rates appears to be cultural. The family is at the absolute center of Israeli life. Getting married and having kids is the highest cultural value. Any Jewish person in Israel or in the diaspora will attest to the immense pressure to marry as if a great tragedy has happened to you if you have had the misfortune of remaining single past 26. But most importantly, children are seen as a blessing and not a burden. I often hear my Canadian friends talk about the cost of having children and the terrible impact that humans have on climate change, but I've never heard an Israeli do the same. Israelis simply lack the kind of nihilism seen among young Canadians today about the future, says this Canadian journalist. Despite the fact that they live in a land where they know they will have to send their children into the army at 18, they aren't afraid to bring children in the world, but they believe that the only way to make a better world is to have children. To many Israelis, children represent life, and only life brings hope. I thought that, that was a great article, a great sanctification of Hashem's name in the totally secular Canadian media where people are trying to figure out the meaning of this Israeli paradox. What's interesting is that it's not only Israel. We see that among Bible-believing people, there is still faith in family that hasn't been influenced by this Western ideology, no matter how much they pummel us with movies and books and articles. And, and you know, none of it is really affecting true Torah believers. And there are pockets all over the world of people that see raising a family as the greatest privilege, not a burden. And they follow the example of Israel wherever they are in the world. And so it seems that the world is shifting to a situation where those who believe in the meaninglessness and uselessness of humanity and life are actually voluntarily opting out of the world, out of the world itself and shrinking themselves down. And there's a sifting process that will take place over the next decades, maybe the next centuries, where those who are spiritually inclined, those who see humanity as a gift, those who see having a life of purpose, of meaning, of giving to others, a life of service, those people are going to have the natural tendency to grow. And it fits so beautifully with the opening word of the portion, Ekev. It says this is not a grand miracle given to us by Hashem. It's the natural cause and effect. If you live by the Torah, you will feel this love of life, this hope towards future generations. You'll want to raise children into this beautiful world that Hashem has given us. I once heard this great parable, by, I think by Rabbi Teller, if I'm not mistaken, and he gives him um, an imagery of this overstuffed emergency room, just patients everywhere, moaning and groaning and suffering. And there's a guy running towards the emergency room and someone sitting outside of the door says, don't go in there, you crazy person. It's, it's hell in there. Do you know what's going on in there? There's people bleeding. There's just, it's overcrowded. People are screaming. People are suffering. You don't want to go in there, buddy. You know, if you go in there, you're just going to be adding to the cast. And then the guy shows him his name tag and says, oh, I'm a doctor. I'm here bringing medicine and treatments. And the person outside the emergency room, oh, oh, you're a doctor. Oh, I'm so sorry to have delayed you. Go on in. Go in fast. They really need you. So it's it's like 
That's how Torah believers see having children. Secular people say, who wants to bring children into the world? It's too crowded. Don't bring people. It's going to cause climate change. It's just going to make things worse. You're a nut to have a family. Look at all the suffering in the world. But a Torah believer says, don't worry. Look at me. I'm a doctor. We're not here to add to the chaos. We're here to bring the medicine to the chaos. That's how we see our families. That's how we raise our families for a life of service to better the world. People who have no meaning or mission can't understand that because if they can't guide themselves to a life of, 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 you know, of service and mission, they certainly can't imagine having enough to give over to a child. So they just opt out. That's the natural outcome. And in the end, what the world really needs is those doctors for people to fill up their chests of medicine by learning as much wisdom and guidance from the Torah so that we can pass that down to the next generation to be healers of the world. And as we do that, the blessing of this week's portion is just the natural outpouring of that. So may there be no barren one among us, but rather a love of life, a love of humanity that keeps us centered and focused on our families as the core value in our lives. So with that, I wish everybody a great week. Bye, guys. Thank you, Tehila. That is just too interesting. It's too interesting that all of these things came out right as we're reading this Parsha. And, you know, people say that, like, the big concern is the overpopulation, where in reality, the biggest concern for Western civilization today is the population collapse, that people are not having enough children. And then what is going to be in the world if there's not going to be a future generation? I mean, the people in Italy are having, I think, less than one child per couple at this point. They're just disappearing. I mean, if everyone just decides to not have children, that will be the end very quick. And if you read the portion, look at what it says. It's just so interesting. If you open up to chapter 7, verses 12 and 13 the very first verses of the Torah portion. And it will be because, ekev, it's like cause and effect, because of this, because you will heed these ordinances and keep them and perform that the Lord your God will keep for you the covenant and the kindness that he swore to your forefathers. And he will love you and bless you and multiply you. It's like, I want you to pay attention to that. First, that's beautiful to know. That like, you know, God created the universe and all these galaxies. And it's like, wow, there's people that are choosing to live the moral life, choosing the good life, choosing integrity. He loves those people. But not only that, blesses them and multiplies them, multiplies them. And then chapter eight, verse one, he says it again, just in case you missed it. Every commandment that I command you this day, you shall keep to do that you may live and multiply. Now, just so you know, as Teal and I were sort of studying the demographics, in 50 years from today, Israel will have more Jewish men and women between the ages of 20 and 50, that's the fighting age in the military, than every European country in the world. So imagine that. When my grandfather first walked from Russia to Israel, there were 60,000 Jews in the land of Israel at that time in 1916. And in 50 years from today, Israel is going to have arguably the largest military in all of Western civilization, like from Israel to Europe. That's unbelievable. And what is the Torah saying? You keep it close to the Torah and you'll be multiplied. I'll multiply you. And as what's the opposite of multiply? It's like those that like disconnect, they're going to depopulate. 
It's just a cause and effect. It's just the reality. Now, here's what's interesting. The Torah never claims to understand God. It never tries to pose questions and answer them like, I don't know. I mean, look at the book of Job. It's just a mystery. And we live within the mystery. We don't understand it all. But aside from posing Hashem Echad, which is pretty much the only philosophy of the Torah, God's oneness, there's really no other philosophy or theology that it imposes. But it claims that there are rules for life that we can understand and that we can test. And they're no different than the laws of physics or gravity. Ekev, it's cause and effect. They are human laws, spiritual laws of behavior. If you walk in the path of righteousness, you will be blessed. You will multiply. If you veer from the path of good and venture into evil, you will be cursed. Not by God coming and cursing you. You're going to end up in hell. Hell on earth. Your life will become a living hell. And in that way, that promise of the rules, ekev, cause and effect, that way the Torah is a 4,000-year-old scientific experiment. And it works. Moses, at the very beginning, he's teaching them throughout the book of Deuteronomy. Learn from the past. Look at what happened when you veered from the path of righteousness. Remember when you worshiped the golden calf? Remember when you sent spies into the land? Do you remember Korach? Do you remember all of those mistakes? The Torah today is much stronger. We have 4,000 years of scientific data. <laughs> empires rose and empires fall. The Romans, the Greeks, the Ottomans, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Medes, the Persians, pharaohs of Egypt rose and fell. They're all gone. But the Jews that were loyal to the Torah bested them all. The Torah is a living testimony, and the Torah speaks not only to the individual, but specifically to society, not just the individual. It's like ekev tishme'un, when you, in plural, listen. You as a society need to adopt these principles individually, but collectively. While Western Christian writings are focused a little bit more on personal salvation, the Torah is constantly talking to the people of Israel, to a society, to a country to a kingdom. And the expectation is that the society will function when each individual steps up to the plate. And, you know, you want to defund the police? You can do that. We can defund the police tomorrow. But if you want to do that, only thing that needs to happen, society needs to accept upon itself the Ten Commandments. If you have a social contract that every single person keeps the Ten Commandments, you practically won't have any use for police. So the world today, it's like totally off kilter. It's almost like we have an ability to be plugged in to a power source and it gives us a life force and it makes us want to have more life and give life and bring life into the world. And you can detach yourself from the life force and just live on your own battery. But slowly that battery sort of like peters out and it definitely doesn't have enough life force to bring new life into the world, or maybe one more life. It's like if you're connected to the source, you're connected to the source of all life. And today the world is like disconnected from everything that brings life. What are the most important things in life? What are the things that make us happiest? There are relationships, our husbands and wives, our children, our parents, 
our brothers and sisters, our close family, our fellowship, our community. The world today is so lonely. No wife, no husband, no children, no community, no church, no clubs. I just read the most interesting study that showed that more people are bowling today in America than ever before. Bowling, you know, where you roll the ball, then you hit the pins, but less than ever are joining bowling teams. No one wants to be on a team. They just want to go bowling by themselves or maybe with another person. They don't want to be a part of a team, a club, a society. They want to be alone. It's like the I generation. It's like me instead of we. That's where we're at now. And, you know, I quote this study a lot, the Harvard Study of Adult Development. It's arguably the longest term research project in the world and explores what makes people happy in life. And the study followed 724 participants and their families since 1938 collecting data on their health and their relationships and their well-being. And the main finding of the study is that close relationships, more than money, more than possessions, more than security, achievements, academic degrees, fame, none of that. Close relationships are the thing that keeps people happiest throughout their lives. And what is the world doing today? It's like separating itself from any close relationships. It's like, the Bible says in the very first chapter, it's not good for man to be alone. I'm going to make Adam and Eve a union. I'm going to make them come together. And um, there's a, a, a scientist named James Fowler, and he's documented just the impact of our social networks. And our social networks, and that's why the Torah is constantly talking about the tribes, talking about our society. Imagine the way Israel is built. It's so brilliant. It's husband and wife, Abraham and Sarah. Then you have Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob. Then you have 12 sons. You have those 12 sons become tribes, communities inside the tribes. There's families that are within tribes. And then all of those things become a nation. It's like from the smallest, it grows, grows, and grows. But the most important connections are husband and wife, ultimately. And what does Jane Fowler says? It says, to, listen, the people that you're around, the people that you associate with, your social circles they are going to have a huge impact on who you are and on what you do. If your closest friends are overweight, you're probably also going to be overweight. If your closest circles around you, if they don't smoke cigarettes, you're probably not going to be smoking cigarettes. It's just an absolute life hack. Surround yourself with people that you admire. Surround yourself with people that you want to be like, and just by being around them, you'll become more like them. It's like, you know what happens when you're a drug dealer? Yeah, hang around with other drug dealers and drug addicts. You know what happens when you're a member of the fellowship? You hang around with the most amazing people on planet Earth. And you hang around with like the greatest souls of the world. And imagine that. I bet Yuval Noah Harari that Tila quoted would call a lot of us the useless class because we're not a part of the elite or whatever the hell they see themselves as. Where in God's eyes, he never talks about the kings or the astronomers or the scientists, what does he care about? The orphan, the widow, the lonely, the poor, the downtrodden. He wants just to see kindness and love in this world. And like, where is kindness, unity, and love expressed greater than in our fellowship? Like what a living example we are. What a, like a slap in the face to that secular ideology. Surround people that walk with God. When you walk in the world, you walk with them. And so why are people living alone? And if they do commune with others, they're usually hanging around with the wrong people. I mean, how could these educated countries be making such 
stupid policies, so intelligent and so stupid at the same time. King Solomon said it first, Rashid Chochmah, Yirat Adonai. The beginning of wisdom is fear of the Lord. And so if the world would adopt the Torah standard for living, there would be no more war. We wouldn't need armies. We wouldn't need police, period. That's the way Israelites entered into Israel. Imagine there were hundreds of years from Joshua all the way until King Saul, where Israel had no king. There was no organized system. There wasn't the need for it because God was king. And if God is the king of your life and of your neighbor's life, you can leave your car key in the hatch, in the switch. No one's going to steal your car because God is king. And so imagine if the world were to adopt a Torah standard for living. There would be no more war. There would be world peace. And so that's our task, ultimately. It's to bring the Torah from Zion to the world. And Ari and I, we've been talking about this a lot. We've been praying about this a lot. We've been thinking about this a lot. And this coming year, we have committed to taking our fellowship to the next level. The Land of Israel Network and the backbone of the network is our fellowship. We are going to bring the light in a way like we've never done before. I mean, we've built this amazing vehicle, this vessel, the Arugot Farm, and it's spreading and conquering the land of Israel slowly but surely. But ultimately, the spirit of this movement is us. It is the message. It is the Torah. It is the message and the light that emanates from Zion. And this coming year, as we're now like ready, getting ready for Elul, the commitment that we have is this upcoming year is going to be the biggest, the best, the most dedicated year we've ever had toward teaching, to this fellowship. We're really going to try to take everything that we're doing to the next level and really shine a new light into the world. Please, God, may that be so. And so let's continue on with what the Torah portion speaks to us directly in our lifetime. Because, you know, we talked about summertime is a good time for rejuvenation. And how do we do that? And to me, the answer is back to basics. Get back to the fundamentals. Get back to the basics of life. You get good at the fundamentals, everything else falls into place. But sometimes humans have this amazing ability to just complicate things. We're just so much, like life is so multidimensional. There's so many things to think about, so many things to do. It's like, we'll come back to the basics. And actually that's what this Torah portion does for us. It summarizes just back to the basics. This is the way to be. This is the way. If you live this way, you will prosper intergenerationally. It's not just talking about our own benefit but the benefit of our children and our grandchildren. And so let's continue. Look at what it says in chapter eight, verse three. God is, Moses is telling the story, trying to light, learn the life lessons. He's like summarizing the last 40 years of experience. And he's saying, this is what I want you to take with you into the promised land. And he, God, afflicted you and let you go hungry. And then you fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your forefathers know so that he would make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but rather by whatever comes forth from the mouth of the Lord does man live. And so let that sink in for a little bit. God, let us go hungry. And then he fed us the man. Both of those were important lessons. One was to be able to walk in a time of hunger, to walk in a time of doubt, but to know that God will provide the manna in time, but he would make us know that man does not live by bread alone. What does that mean? So a nation without God 
cannot sustain itself. You think that the source of your physical reality comes from physicality? No way. From the bread that you eat, you think that the money that you have in your bank account, that's going to sustain you? The world has never been so prosperous and childbirth has never been so low. Imagine that. Man does not live by bread alone. We have more bread than ever. I remember, it still blows my mind every time I go to the United States and I walk into Walmart. There is an entire row that is longer than the highway to Tel Aviv and it's just stacked with different types of bread. Pita breads and white bread and sliced bread and black bread and brown bread and processed bread and every kind of bread that you could possibly think about. The abundance in our generation is beyond any abundance that any generation has ever experienced by far. Kings in the olden days do not eat the way that a regular person eats at a Shabbat table nowadays. Go to a hotel in Jerusalem, the food there, kings did not eat such food that you go to a hotel in Jerusalem and eat the food that you have at the breakfast buffet. And so what's it saying to us? Why is the Western civilization in decline? Why is it disappearing? Why are they not multiplying? Because that's what the Torah is teaching us right here. You cannot live by bread alone. You're going to unplug yourself from the source of life. You're going to lose life itself. You know, Viktor Frankl is one of my greatest inspirations. And, you know, he wrote a book, arguably one of the greatest books to ever be written. And it's called Man's Search for Meaning. I've encouraged everyone in the fellowship to buy this book, to read this book. It is the most, one of the most inspiring books, insightful books, powerful books to ever be written. He lived through the Holocaust, through Auschwitz, and he was a, a, a doctor of the soul, a therapist. And he found ways not only to survive the Holocaust, but to somehow help others. And he studied people, the people that committed suicide, the people that just gave up. But he also studied the people that found enough strength to give the little bit of food that they had to the person next to them. He said, what made the difference? Why did this one person give up on life and kill himself? And how did this person find the resolve to share the little bit that he had to strengthen his friend? And Viktor Frankl says like this, this is a quote, being human is always directed in pointing to something or someone other than oneself, to a meaning to fulfill, to another human being to encounter, a cause to serve, or a person to love. It's what it is to be human is to be engaged with the other. You have a wife, you have a husband, you have parents, you have children. Once you're living with the goal being outside yourself, you're living as a human. And he called that self-transcendence. And you achieve this by, this is a quote, not by concerning himself with himself, with his self-actualization, but by forgetting himself and giving himself, overlooking himself and focusing outward. And, you know, on the farm this Shabbat, we had the rabbi of the University of Baltimore, the campus rabbi that came over for Shabbat. And he's been a friend of mine for many years. And he came with his whole family and just wonderful conversation. And he said that the most successful popular class that he gave at the University of Baltimore was a class called Mitzvot for Millennials. <laughs> That's what he called it, Mitzvot for Millennials. And he said, what is the secret of that class? He said, millennials, the next generation that's rising up today, 
the most fundamental core question that everything is seen through this paradigm is, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? So he's like, okay, well, if that's what they're interested in, then I'm going to do a mitzvah class about what's in it for you. How can and if and if they can't find what's in it for them, then that mitzvah is not going to be for them. And that society that's growing up in that culture is literally the opposite path toward happiness, toward meaning, toward fulfillment, toward everything that Viktor Frankl taught about. It's saying, no, no, you want to live a powerful life. You want to live a life of meaning. The meaning is not going to be about what it does for you. On the contrary, it's finding something that you believe in or something that you love so much that you're not even thinking about yourself anymore. You're so focused on your children. You're so focused on your wife. You're so focused on Israel. You're so focused on God. You're so focused on helping others. You're thinking about outward, outward. And that's when the blessing comes to you. It's like it's like a, such a brilliant catch-22 that the way that we achieve happiness is by specifically not trying to achieve happiness. Happiness is the outcome of our service to others. And so where does that take us now? Obviously, it takes us to the very next verse. Look at chapter 8, verse 5. Nice. And this is critical because this world is not an easy place. I feel like every week I awaken myself to a new challenge that God has placed before me. And sometimes the challenges would be so hard, I would just get knocked out. And slowly but surely, over the years, I think through the prayers of this fellowship, um, my emunah is stronger. But here's what it says in chapter 8, verse 5. You shall know in your heart. That's already beautiful. You need to know this, but you need to know it in your heart. This needs to be something that's like like inside you. It's an embodied knowledge. It's something that you don't just know, you are. That just as a man chastises his son, so does the Lord your God chastise you. So listen, Israel, you've been through a lot of challenges in this world. I mean, you've traveled 40 years through the desert. There were times when you didn't have food. There were times when you didn't have water. There were times you didn't know where you were going. You've been through ups. You've been through downs. You've been enslaved. You've been through the ringer. Never forget. It's not random and it's not tragic. And it's not the devil that got the best of God and somehow this tragedy fell upon you. It's not bad luck. It's a father. Just as a father chastises his son, so does the Lord your God chastise you. It's a father correcting you, challenging you, coaching you, training you. He's guiding you in your life. And so people that just want a life that's dedicated to me, 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 what's in it for me, wait a minute, be ready, because life may deliver a lot more than you're expecting. You are going to be challenged. You're going to be brought to your knees in life, whether you like it or not. You are going to be knocked on your back. You're going. The flood is going to come. It comes in everyone's life, and it doesn't only come once. The flood is going to come, and what we can do is know that God is taking us on a ride. And if we build our ark, then we get to go on a cruise. And if we don't have an ark, we will be swept away in the waters of that flood. But know that the waters, they didn't come tragically, and they didn't come uh, by accident. Those waters ultimately guided the ark to Jerusalem. The ark that finally found the olive branch, it guided them toward the dry land where they needed to be. 
And so when we realize that our purpose is to ultimately enter into the promised land of our lives, that this entire Torah is a template for us, we're all leaving Egypt. We're all traveling through the desert. We're all going to go through challenges. We're all going to go through tests. All of this, why? To enter into the promise of our own lives, to become the person Hashem created us to be. Then we know, okay, we're going to have to travel through the desert. I better drink a lot of water. We're going to have to battle evil kings. We're going to have to go up against sorcerers and prophets that are going to be against us. We're going to have to confront high fortified walls and conquer them. And for us to accomplish our mission, to fulfill our destiny, we are going to have to grow. And growth, what is growth? Growth is exactly what Israel experienced in the desert. It's taking on more than your current self can handle. Leaning into it leaning into the discomfort, leaning into the pain, and then creating the character and developing the virtues that will make that level sustainable. And how do you do that? Habit, practice, and skills. That's why the Torah is like, and this commandment, and this commandment. What are those commandments? What are all? There's so many. What are they all about? It's like, keep on practicing keep on practicing. It's developing a new habit. As you give charity, you're becoming more giving. As you practice telling the truth, even when it would be easier to lie, you're becoming a man or a woman of truth. Keep on practicing truth. Keep on practicing giving. Keep on practicing serving. And all of a sudden, your soul is being revealed in the world. Pain, that's a fact. But in this scenario, suffering is a little bit more of a choice because if we lean into it, we realize we're being chastised. We realize we're just being coached. We're being trained. Then we don't have to suffer. We can actually take that opportunity and grow from it. And failure, I mean, I told you, all of us are going to end up on our backs. All of us. We're all going to be there once in a while. But failure, that's par for course. Failure is structured into life. There are societies that failure is like, like in Japan, if you fail, you're out. It's like a, a shame on the family. It's a shame to, the, your, to your name. Torah says, no, no, no. That tzaddik, the righteous man, he fails seven times and he gets up. So think about that. I mean, it's like if you're lifting weights, I mean, you want to build muscle, then you push until failure. It's like only when you push until you fail, like failure, ah, that's when you really succeed. When you've pushed yourself until you fail, that's when the muscle experiences optimal growth. So failure is what triggers growth. So the real question is then a question of tshuva. When we fail, and that's what Deuteronomy is all about. You failed with the spies. You failed with the golden calf. You failed, you failed, you failed, you, you complained, you failed. I mean, over and over again. The real question is, how long does it take us to recover? I mean, you know, when you go to a doctor, one of the tests that they do is they'll let you run on a treadmill and they'll let you run for a few minutes. And they're not testing to see how fast your heart rate is when you're running. They're testing when you get off the machine. How long does it take for you to recover? How long does it take for your pulse to return to normal? That's actually the sign of health. And so it's not about failing. Failing, yeah, we're all going to fail. I fail all the time. The question is, how fast am I going to get back up on that horse and realize that failure, that's also a part of the plan. Hashem pushed me to my failure in order that I'm able to rise up and grow stronger. And now when we grow up stronger and we start succeeding and we start having success in our lives, then look at what chapter 8, verse 10 says. And you will eat and you will be sated. And you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. 
You know, in Western culture, people say grace before the meal. In biblical culture, the commandment is to say a blessing after the meal. Why? It's a great lesson. It's just practicing. When you're hungry, when you're in trouble, when things are difficult, everyone has a natural instinct to call out to God for help. I'm, I'm having a surgery. I have a problem. I need a job. God, come and help me. No, no, the Torah is saying, yes, obviously, then you're going to pray. Once you eat and you're satisfied, then you shall bless the Lord your God. Once you already got what you need, that's when prayer matters the most. That's when there's a biblical mandate to say grace after your belly's already full. Because what is then the verses continue and they say, uh-uh, if you continue down that path, once you achieve success, once you settle the land of Israel, once you've gotten to where you've meant to be in your life, then what might happen? It's still not over. Because then you might think, it's my strength in the power of my hand that has created this success for me. And uh-oh, that's a slippery slope. That will be an absolute recipe for failure. And so there's an old saying, I'm sure some of you have heard it. It says that life happens a little at a time and then all at once. And what does that mean? It's, it's actually referring to a principle called the accumulation of marginal gains. And I think that the people that succeed in life, they embrace this principle. And what is it saying? It's like just marginal gains, accumulate another small step forward another win, small steps, not, there's no like overnight I won the lottery. That's okay. That happens sometimes. But for most people, it's like one step at a time, learn a little bit, another letter in Hebrew, another letter in Hebrew, another word, slowly, but surely getting better, getting stronger. You know, you can lose a few ounces a day, keep it at that. But then if you keep on losing a few ounces a day, all of a sudden you look around, whoa, I lost 10 pounds. How'd that happen? It's like, yeah, it happens slowly, but then it starts to happen all at once. It's like, if you let your attitude to life, let's say you have a job and you're like, you know, it's not like start complaining. All of a sudden you hate your job. It's like slowly, but surely you start becoming those incremental steps actually lead to something big. And so you don't notice each small step, but then what do you notice? The aggregation of those daily actions. And so what is the Torah saying? It's like the simple steps. Just follow these commandments. Another step forward, another step forward. You're just strengthening yourself. You're preparing yourself. And then when the time comes, you are going to be the person you need to be because all that matters in life is the character that we build and who we become. That can never be taken away from us. And that's what the Torah is trying to build us into. And so now you want the summary of it all. These are maybe the most powerful verses in the Torah. This is chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. And here's what it says. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? He asks for four things. Are you ready? Only to fear the Lord your God. That's number one. Second, to walk in all his ways and to love him. And to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul to keep the commandments of the Lord, his statutes, which I command you this day. That's for, for your good. Why am I telling you all of this? I'm telling you this for your good. I'm not doing this. You don't need to keep these commandments for me. God doesn't need us to keep his commandments. It's for you. And so let's break down these four really quickly. One, fear the Lord. What does that mean? Fear the Lord is really a bad translation of the word yira. Fear is pachad. Yira is more awe, maybe reverence, reverence of the Lord. 
meaning modern society it makes a joke out of everything everything is a joke nothing can be taken seriously it's just nihilistic it's like no take existence seriously take life seriously evil will make everything a joke and just laugh it off fear the lord reshit hokhmayratashem the beginning of wisdom is yiratashem is having a reverence a fear of hashem second is to walk in his ways. That's a different command than to keep his commandments. What does walking in his ways mean? It means that there are ways that God manifests himself. He manifests himself in a spirit throughout the stories of the Bible. Justice, compassion, truth. And in fact, the prophets of Israel and the mystics after created the soul map for us. Such an amazing map to teach us what are God's ways. Never mind the commandments. I got it. But I want to know God's ways. How do I walk God's ways in the world? And so the Soul Map series really lays that out for us. Love and compassion, chesed, strength and discipline, vura, truth, victory and courage, gratitude, equanimity, to walk in God's ways and manifest his spirit, to be a reflection of his light in the world. That's to walk in his ways. Then the second, you want to serve God. But you need to serve God. You have to live life with all your soul. This is number three. And all of your heart. That's the story. It's for your good. He's giving us some people, they just want to kind of like lay low, just kind of go to my job, come home, watch the ball game. Don't make too much noise. Don't press myself. Don't stress myself. Just keep it low. That's not going to be good for you. God says, if you want what's good for you, whatever you're working at right now, if it's your marriage, if it's your children, being a husband, being a father, being a brother, being an employee, being a boss, whatever it is, Give it your all. Serve God in whatever service is before you with all of your heart and all of your might. Put your whole effort into it. That's the way that it will be good for you in the end. These are just guidelines to help us live the best life possible. And then number four, keep the commandments of the Lord. Those will never change. Just keep practicing. Small incremental gains. Every time you do a mitzvah, you've added a new light into your life. And you don't see the light because it's small, but a more light and more light and more light. All of a sudden, it's like, whoa, I lost 10 pounds. Whoa, I'm become, I see I'm more courageous. Every time I was nervous, I flexed my emuna muscle and I just went forward and I faced my fear. And all of a sudden, I'm becoming a courageous person. That's incredible. That can only happen with incremental steps. That's what the mitzvot are. They're just training us step by step to become better, to become stronger, to become holier. And then here we have now the greatest of all things, the great narrative of the Bible, what this is all about. This chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. And here's what it says. Behold, to the Lord your God belongs the heavens and the heavens of the heavens, shmei hashamayim, galaxies and universes beyond universes. I mean, the, the men then, they saw the stars and they realized there is existences beyond the stars. It's, it's ensof. It's endless. It's infinity. God, all of that belongs to him and all the earth and everything that's on it. But what did God want with all of these galaxies and all these stars? Only your forefathers, the Lord desired to love them. And he chose their seed after them out of all his peoples. That's all God wanted. Imagine that. All of a sudden, finally, after who knows how many gazillions of years, Abraham was born. And it's like, oh, finally, 
That's the one that I've been waiting. He's going to be the example. I'm going to choose Abraham and Sarah, one man and one woman. I'm going to choose them. And when I show the world through them that I can choose one person, the whole world will know that I can choose all people. I can live in a personal relationship with every person because I'm choosing the one that I love the most. I'm choosing Abraham now and his children. I'm going to choose the people of Israel and they are going to be a living example that if I watch Israel, it means that I can watch everyone. I can promise to just love everyone, but if I love everyone the same, maybe I don't love anyone. What does love even mean to God? But I will show the world through Abraham. Watch just Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and watch their seed after them as I take them to the land and take them out of the land and bring them back to the land and spread them around the world and fulfill prophecy after prophecy that the world should know that I run the world. How do you know? Watch Abraham and his children. That's the unfolding story, but I want you to know that there's another force in the world. You know, Tehillah mentioned Klaus Schwab from the World Economic Forum. Have you guys seen this guy? <laughs> I try not to talk too much about these people, but I, when you look at a picture of him, I feel like all he needs is like a bald cat, you know, like that bad guy in the movies. It's just like, can you make like a German, more scary looking dude? <laughs> it's like being bad things in the world. And so his one of his books that he's written is called The Great Narrative. Have you heard of this book? It's pretty unbelievable. <laughs> There's a picture of it. This book exists. And so what is he really trying to do? The world, the Bible, is the narrative. It is the narrative and it is the roots of Western civilization as we know it. It's what brought morality to the world. It's what brought God to the world. It is the unfolding story and prophecies that were written in the Bible and coded into the world that are manifesting themselves. And what they're trying to do is create a new narrative. <laughs> it's like, we're going to uproot Western civilization as we know it, get rid of the Bible. And here, I'm going to present you a new great narrative where there's going to be a useless class. And we're just going to get rid of those useless people. And only we're going to, I mean, it's like so evil. It's so crazy. But that's actually, you could see now the clash of good and evil that come together now. And what does God say at the end? Obviously the most beautiful of all things. Chapter 11, verses 11 and 12. I think this might be my favorite verse in the Torah. And this is the verse for the Land of Israel Fellowship. But the land to which you pass to possess is a land of mountains and valleys. The Arugot farm is a land of mountains and valleys like nowhere else in Israel. That absorbs water from the rains of heaven. A land that the Lord your God looks after. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. And so what is the final answer to the great new narrative of the World Economic Forum? God's eyes are on the land of Israel from the beginning of the year to the year's end. When we first built the Arugot farm, we were sued in Israel's Supreme Court by Norway, Denmark, and Germany. They funded lawyers in Israel to sue us in Israel's Supreme Court. And we are a living testimony that Germany doesn't run the world, the European Union doesn't run the world, the World Economic Forum doesn't run the world, God runs the world. His plan will pass his story is unfolding, his prophecies are being fulfilled, and his promise is forever. And we are a 4,000-year testimony. 
if you follow the path of righteousness, empires will rise and this woke movement will fall and blow away with the wind. But the Torah is an everlasting source of wisdom and it will last. And as you can see in Israel, we're only getting stronger. We're only getting better. We're only growing. And so we are the living witness that God runs the world. And the Land of Israel Fellowship, what a name, because it is the center stage. It is where God's eyes are on all the time, from the beginning of the year to the end of the year, every single day. And so Land of Israel Fellowship, may we all be blessed with the blessings of Israel, that God's eyes should be in our lives and our eyes should be on him and that we should bring his light into our life and bless our families and lift everyone around us up as we continue to ascend together toward a new Jerusalem. May you all be blessed from this place. Shalom, my friends. We'll see you again soon. To join the Land of Israel Fellowship, to attend our live interactive Zoom sessions, to participate in the Fellowship Connection Q&A events, or even just to binge on past sessions, click on the link below or go to thelandofisrael.com backslash fellowship and join our family of hundreds of people from around the world broadcasting light from the land of Israel live from the Judean frontier.